Welcome back to GLF Live, the official podcast of the Global Landscapes Forum. When you think of Africa, what are the images that come up in your mind? It's impoverished, underdeveloped, ravaged by conflict, famine, and drought. Or rather, if you're listening to this, you know better than that. You know that Africa is rich in resources and energy, the birthplace of countless great civilizations, and empowered by a rising generation of young people. So why do we keep hearing the same disparaging stories about Africa in the global media, and even in Africa's own media? In today's episode, we'll be exploring how we can change these narratives to ones of abundance and strength, showing what the continent and its people can bring to the table, and thereby paving the way for them to do so. Hi everyone, and uh, welcome to GLF Live. Um, I'm Anita Moragia, Communications and Community Engagement Officer with the Global Landscapes Forum, and your moderator for this conversation. So um, the topic of our discussion today is uh, narratives on Africa. Uh, there are narratives about uh, every country, every continent, every race, religion, ethnicity, and there are elements of truth and fallacy in all of them. But narratives about Africa are among the most difficult to unpack. We often hear of Africa as being a poor, backward, and deteriorating continent with nothing much to offer. But where did these narratives come from? How do they per perpetuate themselves? And if they were shifted, how would that give power back to the continent and its people? In this short time we have, that's what we're here to talk about today. Now, I'll introduce the speakers. First, we have Moki Makura, a TV presenter, producer, author, publisher, and entrepreneur, as well as the executive director of Africa No Filter, a donor collaborative focused on shifting the African narrative. Next, we have Denao Mengestu, a professor of humanities and director of the written arts program at Bard College in the US and multi-award winning author of three novels, all of which have been named as notable by the New York Times. And we have Ibrahim Musa, a graduate of geography and environmental management programs and a land hero of the UN Convention to combat desertification and drought, otherwise known as UNCCD. So now let's dive in. First, I'll ask you all a question and give you all some time to answer. So briefly, what are two or three of the most, of the most prominent narratives perpetuated about the African continent? Who wants to go first? <laughs> Well, I can, I'm happy to start. So, well, thanks for hosting this um, webinar because it's exactly what Africano Filter is all about. We're all about narrative. In fact, I think I'm one of the few people who wakes up every day thinking about the African narrative. And the narrative that we have identified, and this is through, you know, look, literature, looking at literature, looking at academic reports and stuff that have been written about storytelling on the continent, is that there are five key frames to which most, not all, but most stories about Africa are told. And it's poverty, corruption, conflict, um, you know, uh, poor leadership um, and disease. And it's resulted in three kind of, I think prevailing narratives about Africa. One is that Africa is broken because the world wants to try and fix us. The second narrative is that Africa is dependent um, and that we do need foreign aid. We need you know, global North money in order to fix the challenges on the continent. And the final narrative 
that we've identified is that Africans lack the agency to create the change they need. So these are the narratives that we as African no fault have identified and we are working towards trying to change. Thank you, Moki. Definitely. I definitely agree. Perhaps we can have Denau uh, also answer. I mean, I, I, I would have to wholeheartedly agree with everything that that, that was just noted. Um, I mean, in particular, I always think that part of what's uh, the framework around Africa oftentimes strips um, African, African countries, African citizens of their sort of role as political actors. Um, we actually sort of become just sort of victims or perpetrators as if there's sort of no um, kind of complicated, interconnected series of political forces that people are actively both responding to and creating, and that those political forces and situations exist in a larger global context. And oftentimes, Africa is sort of stripped both of its own political agency, um, but also slipped of the kind of discourse that it has with the rest of the world. And instead, it's sort of isolated into these conditions, as Moki sort of eloquently noted, of of sort of poverty, of, of corruption. Um, and they're isolated in a way that tends to make us imagine that those are the conditions that are both sort of endemic and also permanent, um, that they belong um, to this place sort of, especially from you know somebody who works and, and, and lives primarily in the West or um, that those are conditions that sort of are always a part of that place that's sort of far, far away. And so it's always seen um, especially through sort of foreign media as a landscape that's not only incredibly sort of remote, but also um, kind of perpetually stuck in a in, in one narrative um, condition in one sort of political and economic reality. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Denao, and especially talking about the the facets that is, uh, enable these narratives to continue being endemic. I think that's extremely important to consider. Um, Musa, why don't you go ahead? <laughs> so thank you very much for inviting me and giving me the privilege to be among these distinguished guests. Um, you see, there have been a lot of um, prominent narrative about Africa. And uh, what most of them is that um, Africa is a fragile continent. Africa is constantly in need of humanitarian aid. Africa is poverty stricken. Africa it has a lot of issues of diseases, bad governance and conflict. So these are some of the narrative about Africa. And I think um, this narrative has been there for some while. And um, Africa is more than that. Africa is a beautiful continent. Irrespective of that, Africa is also a young continent that has a lot of potential, untapped wonders. And Africa has what it takes to, to, to be a promised land. But uh, notwithstanding, Africa has always been seen as a, as a continent with a uh, need for humanitarian crisis, a continent that is very fragile, and of which, in, the, in reality, Africa is not too fragile. We have a lot of young people in Africa. Africa's population is to the interest of the, 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 the young people, and Africa is a powerful nation, it's a powerful continent that has a lot of untapped wonders. But the common narrative has, um, has put Africa in the position that Africa is fragile, of which Africa is not. And Africa is not a disease um, and stricken continent. And uh, most of the times, what uh, the, the, the media um, narrate about Africa is that when a particular country in Africa is facing a particular issue, they tend to ascribe Africa as the same. But Africa is diverse. Africa is a, is, is a, is a wonderful continent. And um, one, one issue in one part of Africa 
should not be used to categorize Africa as, as that um, particular incident or issues. So I think that is what I feel about um, the narrative about Africa. Thank you, Musa. I wholeheartedly agree, you know. It's definitely such a delicate balance trying to convey the real uh, realities of the continent, but at the same time balancing that with, you know, the beauty, the complexity that is home for myself and so many. Um, so uh, next we'll sort of go into questions for uh, each of you. And so I'll firstly start off with a specific question for Dinao. Um, when Ethiopia was undergoing the Red Terror, a period of political repression in the late 1970s, um, your father sought asylum. And when you were two years old, your mother moved you and your sister from Ethiopia to rejoin him in the US. How did you grow up viewing your home country and continent? And what did this early migration mean for you? Um, you know, think as, as as you were phrasing the question, a part of me was noting how interesting it was just the construction of the question because you began with the political conditions for our our, our exile, um, which is very different from the way the narrative existed growing up in America, which was always a narrative dominated by sort of poverty and famine. Um, again, as if those sort of conditions existed independent and sort of a priori of any political reality or any sort of dynamic um, relationship between Ethiopia and the rest of the world. The narrative growing up for me was always about poverty and famine. And it was, um, and not that there wasn't, of course, a famine in Ethiopia during this time, but it was a famine that, again, was sort of stripped of the complexity which it was created and reduced to you know, the most sort of trite symbols possible. Um, one that sort of not only devalues and debases the lives that were being lost, but also um, diminishes the incredible kind of culpability and complexity of the people who were both sort of responsible and also trying to respond to it. Um, so growing up, you know, I grew up in as if that political reality didn't exist. And instead, there was only the kind of um, reductive and sort of sentimentalized narrative of a country that was, you know, as Moose had noted as well, kind of broken and in desperate need of salvation. And that be makes... Um, the country and our narrative uh, uh, a sort of vessel for whatever the rest of the world needs to do, right? So if the rest of the world needs um, something to save at that particular moment, then Ethiopia became that thing to save. Um, and, you know, the challenge growing up under that, under that framework and under that rubric is how to sort of restore and kind of identify and, and construct again the, you know, the narrative that I needed to have and the narrative that my family had also always grown up with and lived with, which was this country of, um, of an incredibly rich history. Um, and finding a way back into that narrative, into that story was certainly probably, you know, one of the most important things in shaping an identity that allowed me to believe that, um, you know, being Ethiopian and, and being from the continent were things not only to be sort of incredibly proud of, right, but that also reminded me of of this whole history and world that actually, you know, not only I could interrogate in and investigate, but that that seemed absolutely divorced and cut off from, from the reality I was living in. Thank you so much, uh, Danau. Um, one of the things you shared that stuck out to me was uh, this idea of a rubric in which, you know, very complex elements of what it means to be African or what it, an African narrative is and fitting them all into this very square box, um, for sure. Um, reminds me of Benyavanga Wanaina's How to Write About Africa. It's, it's always funny to read, but also quite sad. 
Um, I think I'll move on to a question for Moki now. Um, Moki, you've also moved from your home in, in Nigeria to live in London and South Africa. Um, how did living in the UK as well as another African country shape your perspective on African narratives in terms of how they're created outside and inside the continent? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's very interesting for me because I had lived longer outside my own country than I have um, in it. And actually very similar experiences in that the UK actually was probably a better experience in that I didn't feel the racism, but I wouldn't come back to that. But in South Africa, you do know there is something called xenophobia. As a Nigerian living in South Africa, married to a Zimbabwean living in South Africa, I definitely feel that there is a narrative around being Nigerian that South Africans don't like. Um, so one of the things that we do do at African Falls is we look at narratives between Africa equally, not just narratives about Africa, because there is a perception that, you know, narratives always evolve from external sources. It's actually narratives within Africa. We do not know each other. So we rely on the same stereotypes and the same tropes. But um, for me, and this actually goes to um, what the other speaker was saying about 1985 was a pivotal moment for me personally and for Africa. It was 1985 was the year of Live Aid. It was the year of We Are the World, Michael Jackson. It was the year that the industry around saving Africa, I think, formed. And that was really a lot to do, well, it was entirely to do with the um, famine and the drought that was happening in Ethiopia at the time. And I was a Nigerian living in England thinking, oh my God, those poor Ethiopians, not really identifying with them because that was Ethiopia, didn't know very much about it. But the impact of that drought was felt across Africa in terms of how the world defined Africa. That was a pivotal moment for us. And for me, lying, I remember lying on my bed, watching one of the concerts, thinking, mm, how can I help Africa? As an African child, just somehow distancing myself, not really feeling that actually those people are talking about me. Then it slowly began to hit me that everybody thought we we were all one, that Africa was this one homogenous thing. And if there was a drought here, you know, in Ethiopia, it was also affecting, you know, my family in Nigeria. It's the same with Ebola. Ebola happened in West Africa, actually in three countries in West Africa. But I remember people were scared in South Africa. Is it, you know, if you travel, you're from Africa, you know, so there, there, there are issues um, with it. But I felt very much that as Africans, we have to be able to speak to the rest of the continent, right? And I think a lot of us can't, we just don't know. We don't know, we aren't taught African history in our schools. If you, if I grew up in, I went to school um, in Nigeria and in the UK, I know a lot about British history, both from Nigeria and from my time um, in the UK. So I feel there's a lot of work we as Africans need to do to be able to correct the narrative between us before we start thinking about what outsiders, what non-Africans um, say about us. And there is a lot of work to be done, but I think we're in the right moment. I think Black Lives Matter, ironically, helped a lot. It gave us space to be able to talk about racism. It gave us space to be able to talk about othering, that, you know, <laughs> we're not the same as you and we, we deserve to be represented better. But yeah, so there's, there's a lot I can speak on the subject, but I'll stop there. Thank you, Moki. I wholeheartedly agree. I think uh, my 
where were you when moment was definitely Kony 2012, where I felt, you know, similar ways to you um, in terms of, you know, the Save Africa narrative. Um, uh, Ibrahim, I will uh, now go on to you. So for you as a, as a young person, what narratives do you see as most outdated? And how do young Africans view themselves in both the Africa in both the African and global uh, contexts? All right, thank you so much for the question. And um, initially, when I was um, giving my first remark about the common narration that is being given to Africa, um, there are a lot of um, emphasis being placed that Africa is um, a poor continent. Africa cannot actually stand on its own without humanitarian support, without financial support. Africa is a, a continent with bad governance. Africa is a continent with uh, diseases. Africa is also a continent that is, um, um, that is faced with so many climatic issues and environmental problems like pollution. But um, I think some of those um, narrative about Africa are actually unjust and false because uh, when the COVID-19 pandemic came, we saw how resilient Africans are to the pandemic. We saw how immune some Africans are to the, to the COVID-19 pandemic. And also we look at the issue of poverty. And uh, we all know that in the world today, the issue of inflation is affecting everybody. It's not just only, in, it's not just only happening in Africa. So I feel it is very important that uh, Africa should not be looked through the lens of just and being fragile and um, in need of um, urgent humanitarian assistance. And also a lot of emphasis have been placed uh, that Africa is um, stricken with drought. And I remember well in um, COP15 in Abidjan, um, it was mentioned that there is no country that is immune to drought. And today we are seeing so many countries, continents across uh, uh, beyond Africa being faced with issue of drought, land degradation, and even desertification. This has shown uh, evidently that um, issues of environmental concerns are not only peculiar to Africa, but is peculiar to all other parts of the, of the continent. And um, the issue of humanitarian and bad governance is that um, Africa has evolved. Although Africa is a young country, Africa has evolved. And Africa has what it takes at this point in time to be able to um, uh, um, champion um, success for the continent. And Africa has been doing their best, but it's not really easy. And um, I mentioned that Africa is a young continent. And I um, mean, the issue of bad governance, we all know that um, Africa is facing some challenge in terms of governance, in terms of political instability, but that does not um, really allow or give the impetus for most of the um, condemnation to be that Africa is a is a is a country is a continent with poor governance. We all we all have issues of poor governance in many parts of the in many parts of the world today, not just only Africa. And the issue of poverty, I think, it should be it should be an issue that should be relegated from the African context. Africa is striving. Africa contributes only four percent or less than four percent of um, global emission of greenhouse gases. Most of these uh, emissions, most of the consequences of climate change arise from the harmful uh, um, practice or emission of uh, greenhouse gases from these developed countries. So Africa has been resilient. Africa is trying to recover. And Africa is a young continent. And Africa has been doing a lot to ensure that 
both his people, his citizens are well um, catered for, and it's not an easy task. And I believe that Africa can do better, and Africa is going to do better, and Africa is going to be a promised land. So I essentially believe that having Africa, putting Africa in the position of always in urgent need of humanitarian crisis, always in poverty, and always a disease-stricken um, continent is a misconception about Africa, and that does not actually portray what Africa is, because Africa is a beautiful continent. There are a lot of beautiful sceneries in Africa. There are a lot of beautiful, uh, there are a lot of um, resources in Africa, whether human resources or natural resources. And across the world, they, they, they is a, there is a narration that Africa is crude. There are a lot of harmful practices in Africa, but I feel that is not actually the case. If, if you look at the entertainment sector, in the world, Africa is actually doing their best. Africa is leading. If you look at the area, the, the, the area of um, uh, land restoration, just an example is um, the Great Green Wall in Africa, in the Sub-Saharan Africa, in the Sahelia region of Africa. Africa is creating an example for the whole world to, to follow. And I believe that Africa has what it takes and Africa should not be portrayed as a fragile, as a vulnerable, as a more vulnerable continent but as I think Africa should be looked at the lens of resilience and recovery. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your answer. Um, I, I definitely agree with you. And I think that also touches on Moki's point in terms of looking what cuts across before, you know, uh, uh, comparing ourselves from the outside in. Um, and I think uh, now I'll just move on to the next question, which is for Denal. Um, Denal, uh, as a prolific writer, you've spent a large portion of your career thinking about and researching this topic and figuring out how to communicate around it. What in your time doing so has been the most frustrating? And what is something you've learned or come to believe as truth that you wish you could make everyone open their eyes and see? Yeah, I, I think some of the question, the parts of the questions um, go sort of hand in hand. I think one of the the frustrating things of, you know, initially beginning my career is wanting to, and and at times naively believing that if you could um, bring as much complexity to stories uh, in Africa as possible, then you would be able to um, both kind of, you know, engage with and and certainly have a discourse with, you know, certain very significant um, political um, issues and problems that happen throughout the continent, while at the same time making sure you can avoid some of the reduction that often happens. Um, so I, I, I still do believe there is a way to, and a necessity and an, and an ethical and sort of moral obligation to telling those stories with that level of complexity, but finding that, you know, the, the, a large percentage of, of the sort of media and cultural landscape will nonetheless continue to resort to the most um, basic sort of tropes. Um, I, I, I found what Moki was saying quite interesting and, and it's really significant in understanding that, um, that there's a discourse that can happen and is happening between Africa um, and that that discourse is perhaps the thing to sort of prioritize going and thinking about what African narratives are sort of intended to do and how they're meant to be consumed and thought about and, and constructed. Um, you know, similar to what Toni Morrison's idea of wanting and being able to write away from a white gaze without thinking that, well, 
you know, how do I tell a story without wondering how is it going to be interpreted by an audience that's always going to view this as somewhat um, familiar or, or foreign. Um, thinking of how to actually tell stories that are actually in conversation with, um, you know, lives in our own communities and within our within and across the continent. I think there's a an enormous um, sort of need and necessity around that. I mean, I, I see it certainly now in Ethiopia where, um, you know, the political discourse has 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 dramatically and sort of tragically destroyed and is actively sort of destroying so much of the country right now um, by reducing us and reducing sort of history of the country into um, very fragmented um, cultural and ethnic uh, factions. Um, so I think there's something to be said about trying to to stop um, addressing the sort of flaws and failures of a global um, and sort of, you know, Western-oriented perspective. And um, and remembering that's not an argument that can be won, um, nor is it an argument, nor is it an argument to begin with anymore. Um, and stepping out of that discourse into another one that actually begins from a place of um, of complexity and and respect um, and thinking about well how do I tell the stories to within and within my own community how do I talk to other Ethiopians how do I talk to other people in the continent to make them understand and see um, and engage with some of the same issues that I'm concerned with. Wholeheartedly agree, and just to add on, you know, the the how part also be, it becomes so much more complex because you know how you talk to different people continental Africans versus diasporic Africans versus third culture kids, you know, there's always such a complex way in which we tell stories and, and, and you know, how those stories are understood. Um, I'll move on to Moki. Um, you know, Moki, having come from a career in media, um, what role does the, the media play in shaping these, these narratives around Africa and what needs to happen for the media to play a role in changing the narratives that need to be changed? Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there are 54 countries or 55 countries in Africa and I have traveled extensively, but I haven't been to all of them. So where do I get my images and my thoughts, and my ideas about some of the different countries? Like I've never been to Somalia, I've never been to, you know, Gabon. It's from the media. The stories I know about certain countries come entirely from the media because I'm not even watching films about Somalia. I'm not watching, you know, films. Well, actually I have, I've watched the, the, the piracy one. But so, so the point I'm making is that media have a powerful role to play because they interpret the world for us. Um, and in that case, they have, you know, they're very influential in how people think and perceive. And we know that, you know, the things you believe inform your thoughts. And your thoughts inform your behavior. So when people are racist, when people is because of what they've consumed about Africa. So yes, I do think the media have a very, very powerful role to play. I'm not pointing fingers, but they are one of the key players. But there are, you know, you know, I once was on a panel where, you know, we were talking about where the other person was saying, well, you know, Africa's not all, you know nice it's not all roses and you know pinkness and prettiness there's a lot of terrible things that go on here like there are in other parts of the world and my argument is that you know we're, we're not saying that we are trying to do a PR campaign for the continent right we're not asking media not to write about corruption not to write about the conflict because those are important stories to tell 
But I think there are two things that we can do and ask media to do. One is ask media, who is the hero of the story that you're telling about conflict or poverty? Because often those issues become the heroes. They've almost dehumanized us. You know, when you look at the coverage of the Ukrainian war, where it was very much a human interest story. We saw the people that were affected. But you look at the coverage of conflict in Africa, we become issues, we become numbers, it's data. It's, the, it's, it's about our leaders, it's about the issue, it's never about us who we are. So we can tell those stories much better. That's the first point. We can tell the stories of conflict, of corruption, of poverty much better, where we put human beings, Africans, as the heroes of the, of the story, as opposed to the issues that affect them. That's the first thing. The second thing, we can tell other stories. Those are not the only stories about Africa, and those are the ones the media tend to focus on. In fact, research that we've done, and this was research across Africa, where we looked at what African media were covering about other African countries, 81% of the stories that we went through were about conflict, corruption. They were all negative stories, because unfortunately, the definition of news in the world is negative. News is not, oh, Anita's done this amazing thing. News is Anita walked out and she got killed. That's what makes the headlines because there is a perception that if it bleeds, it leads. So there is this old fashioned idea of what news is. And what we found is that actually a lot of young people, particularly, they're turning away from traditional media outlets because they're tired of the negativity and they're tired of the, you know, just complex stories and nothing ever seems to work. So what we're finding is that's why there's a growth in you know, news influencers, new media people who are putting content out there. One of the women that we actually support, her name is Maria Mbuli. She's on TikTok. She puts out stories that she says that just are positive, just good news. Um, in fact, her network is called Habari and Jerry, which I think it's really means good news. She has on some of her posts up to 5 million views. She's got half a million followers. That is more than probably the nation media's group. You know, this is more than some of traditional media outlets. So the point is that, you know, media, we have to redefine news. We have to redefine what media is and where people are getting their news because, you know, we, we can't keep on sort of talking about this narrative and going back to these people who keep feeding it to us. We have to do something about it. And the last thing I will say on this is the African Oil Filter, one of the initiatives we have is we're looking at doing a global media index where we're looking to rank and rate and identify and pick out the media outlets, the global media outlets who report on the continent in a way that we do think is detrimental or is just, you know, reinforcing the stereotypes. And the idea is not necessarily to point out that, oh, you know, Al Jazeera or, you know, CNN or BBC, you are the bad guy. What we want to say is, hey, CNN, you're doing it right. This is how to tell a difficult story. This is how to write about Africa. So, yeah, there's a lot of work you know, being done into sort of changing the way media is looking at Africa and they are looking to do it themselves as well. Thank you, Moki. Wholeheartedly agree once again. And it's interesting because I think people usually think that, you know, the political economy of building a terrible African narrative is what is uh, the cause of why the narrative is the way it is. But considering what the kind of media people consume that is positive, you know, just also shows you that that's also what people want to, to see. Um, so thank you so much. Ibrahim, um, uh, you are now a land hero for the UNCCD, a prominent young face. Um, what role can such international institutions and even governments play 
in uh, changing narratives on Africa. All right, thank you very much for the question. And um, I think to respond to this question, I would like to say that how the um, young people in Africa view themselves, both in local and global context. I would like to say that uh, as a young person in Africa, I feel very proud, very vocal and very vibrant to be able to create change that is needed for the development or sustainable development of my continent, Africa, not just Nigeria, where I reside or where I am from. So as a land hero of the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification, and um, I feel there are a lot of roles my government and the UN system can play to help change the narrative about Africa, most especially the first narrative about Africa. When I started, I said, as a young person in Africa, we know what we are facing. We have first-hand experience of what are the challenges of Africa, and we also know how to address some of these issues. So I feel very um, greatly that it is important um, as a land hero and as well um, a citizen of Nigeria for government to create meaningful inclusion of young people in processes, in um, gatherings, and in um, areas where young people can, can bring out their ingenuity, can bring out their creativity, talent, and force to effect sustainable change in the continent. And um, as the last speaker was saying, they talk about uh, what the media portray. I think this is a good opportunity for the UNCCD and uh, the government in Nigeria to play their role, to show to the world through the media positive impact that young people are doing, young Africans are doing, their ingenuity, their, their creativity and their talent to ensure that Africa becomes a promised land, Africa become a self-reliant um, um, continent. And I also feel um, greatly that it is important that young people in Africa or myself as a land hero, there is a need for empowerment, both whether um, uh, financial empowerment, whether knowledge transfer or whether uh, other forms of uh, capacity building to ensure that myself as a young person, as a young champion in local community can be able to sit in the same table with other counterparts from other continents to talk about issues, to, to improve on the con uh, conversation and to be able to give my own insight on what is needed, what is not needed and how I can become a change maker in the global context, not just the local context, so that we can start seeing more uh, positive narration that African young people are vibrant, African young people are vocal, and African young people has what it takes to take not only local leadership, national leadership, but international leadership for sustainability of the planet at whole, as, um, um, as a whole. Thank you. Thank you. I think that's 100% important. And, you know, just thinking about myself growing up, it would have really been nice to see a lot more avenues in which I could have been involved in, in something like this. So it's, it's really inspiring to have people like you as a land hero for the youth. Um, so in the interest of time, I'll just skip to the last question so we can also take um, some questions from the audience. So this is a question for everybody. Um, when African narratives shift to become more true, positive, and supportive of the continent's power, how do you believe this will affect the rest of the world? Um, I think we can start with Dinao. 
yes. I mean, I I, I, I want to be very careful here too with, with these terms because I, I do think one of the most important things that um, active and engaged media can and should do is hold its truth, hold power accountable. Um, and holding power accountable is one of the things media can do. And doing so does mean not as a way of focusing on the negative, but as a way of holding it accountable to the people whose lives are affected by those political decisions. And being able to do that is, I think, an inherently necessary step to the construction of countries and a continent that isn't looking outwards and that, is, that isn't looking to any external sources for its um, any form of salvation. When I look at in Ethiopia, for example, and I see what the government's message is, it is a message of constant positivity in the midst of an enormous crisis. And it's a message that willfully and deliberately ignores enormous amounts of suffering in order to project an image of a country that is progressing forward, that is not in fact progressing forward, that is endangering the lives of millions of its citizens. So I, I don't think it's a, um, I think holding, focusing on the idea of the positive for me isn't, isn't what I think are, are my responsibility is. My responsibility is to hold um, things to the most complex level possible. And that means having, of course, a mix of narratives that don't just sort of dwell on the negative, but that dwell, of course, on the multiple, subtle, on the multiple narratives occurring inside of our countries at the same time, while at the same time interrogating what is difficult um, to the same degree um, with the same level of care and intelligence and scrutiny that we would ask of any political story, right? That means making sure that we understand how these crises are born, not just from the individual actors, but as part of a complicated series of historical and contemporary political pressures. That requires work and labor. And that's the kind of stories that I, I, I wanna see. Um, I worry about a push towards positive, towards sort of prioritizing a positive side because I don't think I think that allows a lot of um, damage to go un, unrecognized. And definitely agreed, in Dinal. Um, you know, political consciousness is something that definitely takes so much time and intentionality to build. And you know, different countries <laughs> require um, you know different levels and different uh, histories. So. It's, you know, it's, it's definitely a, an upward <laughs> um, progression. Um, Moki? You want us to, what's the question you want me to answer? Um, the, when African narratives shift to become more true, positive and supportive of the continent's power, how do you believe this will affect the rest of the world? Yeah, I mean, you know, th this is something, like I said, we, we, we do because we realize the impact. I mean, I can talk about the impact if, of if that doesn't happen, if African narratives don't shift. We're going, the, the, the problem with narrative is that Africans equally believe it, right? So, you know, some of the migration, you know, there's a movement in Nigeria going on right now called the Jackma movement where young people are fleeing with no intention of coming back. These are economic migrants. These are not refugees, right? And the, 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 because there is no African dream, you know, there is no, the belief is that, you know, nothing's going to happen on this in, in their country to, to deliver change. They believe the system's broken, the country has broken. So the impact of that is why we need to change the narrative. The impact of the fact that people are not investing in Africa. I used to work for an organization, you know, very, you know, amazing philanthropist who spent 
billions, billions in Africa, but very little of his money has been invested in Africa. He doesn't do business in Africa. He does philanthropy in Africa. It's very different. And I think when people start understanding that there's a return on your investment because the narrative about Africa is no longer that it's broken, that the narrative, one of the narratives is that you can make money in Africa, that Africa is a business and investment destination. That's more impact that you look at. It creates jobs, it creates hope, it creates investment opportunities. That's another impact. And, you know, one of the things that I, you know, that we've sort of looked at is the development policies. Right now, a lot of the development policies from Global North, they, they not only do they perpetuate, they believe that inherent in those policies is this brokenness of Africa. Because a lot of the time, we are not partners in our development. A lot of the time, strategies and the problems, in fact, are identified in Global North. The strategies are developed there, and they look for, in some cases, African partners to implement the solutions that they have already identified for us. And I always say, so if you come into my home and you say, Moki, you need a new roof. And I'm like, but my children haven't eaten for two days. You're going to give me whatever money you're going to give me. The moment you fix that roof, I'm going to take every single tile off that roof. I'm going to sell it and I'm going to do what I really need. And that's why development doesn't work because we are still not partners. And that is the impact of us, of them not changing the narrative that Africans don't have agency. We don't have the ability to make the change. So a lot needs to happen. That, that narrative needs to change because we can see the impact of the current narrative. So if we change it, we undo some of that impact. And I think we need to get to a stage. And, and you know, um, to the point that's already been said, it's not about one narrative. It really isn't. I mean, I've already identified three negative ones, and I'm sure there are thousands more. But we don't want one good narrative. We want a multiplicity of narrative. When I think about New York, I think about lots of things. But it's predominantly great, you know. But when I think about Africa, I think about lots of things. But for a lot of people, they think about one or two things and they're predominant, predominantly negative. And that's why it's important to change the narrative. Thank you, Moki. And um, Ibrahim. Okay, very well. I see, I feel that it is very important that um, the narrative, the negative narrative about Africa changes. But you see, it, it will take a lot of effort by both Africa and uh, other continents to be able to see towards the actualization of this positive narrative. And uh, one thing I would like to say is that um, I think at this point in time, just as the last speaker said, we should be, uh, other continents should be looking at Africa as a potential partner and, a, and they, should, they have to collaborate with us. They shouldn't look at us from a fragile um, perspective. Africa should not be looked at. We only, we only demand. There should also, we, have, we have a lot of local solutions in Africa. We have a lot of um, um, both local and national um, solutions to some issues, some global issues that are being faced. So I think it is a, it's a serious tax ahead of everyone, not just only the, the other continents or the global north, but it's a collective task to ensure that Africa's narrative change for a positive one. And um, I think it is also important that we should not just change one narrative and say there has been a positive narration about Africa. Let's say, for instance, you change the narrative that Africa is not a continent with um, predominant cases of diseases and pandemic or um, issues like, let's say, cholera, Ebola, and other 
forms of uh, diseases that have been attributed to Africa. I think it should be looked at holistically and our government in Africa or our leaders in Africa has a great role to play. They need to strengthen the leadership. They need to strengthen the trust among the people, in, among the people who they are leading in Africa to ensure that Africa has a unified voice irrespective of the complexity that they, they exist in Africa. We have a unified voice and the media has a great role to play. The media in Africa should also and equally portray the good aspect of how Af the good aspect of Africa's trajectory. They should not only be showing or portraying the, 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 the bad side of Africa, but show more of the good side so that many people will feel the sense of understanding and many people will key into ensuring that Africa becomes a great continent, Africa becomes a promised land. And it is a collective effort. And the challenges that Africa are facing today as a young continent may look very enormous, may look very, uh, quite insurmountable, but I, I feel we can actually uh, become a great continent by having us play a critical role in global con uh, conversation. I think that is my own take. Thank you. Thank you, Ibrahim. Thank you so much. Um, so we're going to move on to some questions from the audience now. And I know that uh, all three of you have likely touched on this, but it would be nice to hear, I guess, of, um, of some specifics. So one of the questions from the audience um, is, uh, so what are the narratives that need to be told and what narratives are not being told? Um, who, who would like to, to take that? He's feeling very strongly towards that question. I mean, I'm happy to try to, to speak to it. Um, you know, one of the things that we know now is that we're living in a fast paced digital world, you know, virtual world, you know, we're doing this, we're all sitting in different countries now. And I know that if Africa does not move and is not seen at a, as a place of creativity and innovation, we are going to get left behind, right? So if there is a narrative that personally I would like to see, it's one around cre creativity and around innovation. And we've actually just published a report on both, one on creativity and one of the key findings actually is that young people don't want to go into, into the creative space because they don't feel it's a viable profession, even though it's one that requires just talent. And that is one thing that we don't, we're not, we don't have a shortage of. But innovation, you know, one of the questions we asked in the survey is that will the next Mark, um, Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates, can they come out of Africa? The overriding sentiment was that yes, somebody of that sort of level who can actually create something that changes the world can come out of the continent because local innovation is as important as global innovation. You know, we've got examples where things that were started, certainly in South Africa, have become you know global because of the needs, unique needs we have here. So we mustn't bring ourselves down and think that you know, innovation is just, it's always, you know, I wouldn't say poverty innovation, you know, where we're using a foot pump to pump, you know, water um, because we, you know, we don't have the other types of that. I've seen these kind of like poverty innovation stories. I'm like, no, why do we have to settle for that? Why can't we do big stuff? So there is a narrative that I would like to see. It's around innovation that, you know, innovation lives here in Africa too. Thank you, Moki. 
uh, now I see you thinking. <laughs> no, I, 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 lo I love that. And I think that's uh, without a doubt. Um, I, I think that's a great, if I were going to come up with a sort of, you know, capital camp phrase, it would be innovation lives here. I think it's a brilliant um, sort of way of, of, of helping us also reimagine and reconceive um, both what's happening and what's possible. Um, I was also thinking, you know, I was in a conversation with um, colleagues in Ethiopia about um, the work that they were sort of doing and one of the things that they were noting that they felt was incredibly urgent actually was um was actually historical right it was actually going back and telling um because oftentimes our narratives are either um filtered through a kind of colonial or post-colonial lens um or they're oftentimes um dominated from within by one particular sort of um you know hegemonic narrative authority um going back into sort of our narratives and actually complicating our narratives so we could actually understand ourselves in our cultures and our politics and our histories um i think is 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 sort of incredibly important. Um, it not only helps us locate who we are amongst ourselves, but also I think helps us also kind of understand the, the sort of very long and complicated history that Africa has with the rest of the world um, beyond just the kind of colonial discourse, which um, tends to still be the dominant one. I think there's something about a historical narrative that is both kind of actively reclaimed and that seeks to exist and stand independent of that colonial narration and that post-colonial reality is essential. Um, and we can get away from this idea of, of just only having the post-colonial. I think, um, you know, both that sense of like looking forward as, as was just noted, um, while at the same time um, becomes a part of also what allows us to be able to look back at the same, you know. You know, can I just ask a follow-up in terms of just the, the narratives, the colonial narratives that you spoke about? Um, in terms of like for people who want to start working on on changing those narratives but live in very real structures like education, for example, or working in, you know, the NGO world where you have to meet, um, you know, uh, a certain, uh, you know, objective uh, outline by the donor, how can people work outside of those narratives? in trying to improve, work outside of those uh, boxes and trying to improve, improve narratives outside of those structures? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, I mean, because I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm answering the question from, I think, a very um, sort of privileged space, right, which is so when I talk about being able to sort of access, access different forms of sort of archival knowledge, right, it's meaning um, sources of knowledge and, and, and information that are both sort of formal um, and sort of exist within the state, but also forms that kind of exist outside of that, right? And that some of that is sort of within our own sort of local communities and understanding what that, what those sort of different historical and narrative traditions are, um, finding ways to actively not only sort of capture them, but also connect them. I think oftentimes what happens is we gather the narratives that are immediately close to us and they maintain a kind of isolation, right? We keep them contained and we think of this as the story of our community, our particular location, our family, um, and being able to put those narratives into a kind of larger cultural discourse across other communities and trying to understand how um, how people have sort of lived and talked and worked together for a much longer span of time than the ones we've, you know, traditionally been told. That takes time, right? That 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 is a that is a resource, and I think you're right. If there's a kind of practicality of of meeting the kind of narrative demands of the immediate moment, it makes it that much harder to be able to kind of step outside of that and and find um, longer historical narratives, which might not not seem which might not seem as relevant or as necessary 
what I believe are because they help shape our understanding of what our contemporary and immediate political culture and discourse looks like. So it's it's not it's it's not a simple ask or or a simple sort of thing. I think it's something that is imperative certainly for those who work in in you know in in information making and in knowledge making communities i think that's um i'd love to see that be a priority that um so mm-hmm. thank you Danelle. um you know I, I definitely agree it's extremely complex um and it also uh, kind of answers one of the other questions from the audiences um can these uh narratives only be told by africans themselves or also people from outside Africa? And if so, how do people outside of Africa reframe African narratives? Um, Would you like to speak more to the maybe people outside Africa considering you you are also um, in diaspora and and, and maybe perhaps Moki and Ibrahim? I'm looking at the time as well. So if we can maybe keep this answer quite short, it it would be really helpful. I I I'm 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 I I would hate to limit who can tell a story. I think being conscious of your position is absolutely imperative. And as somebody who is a part of the diaspora, understanding the distance that I have from the stories I try to engage with and trying to make that distance be evident and a part of the narration, not trying to gloss over it, but understanding that it comes with both limitations and at times you know a difference in perspective um, is essential. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, I would just add that, you know, just as we need a multiplicity of narratives, we also need a multiplicity of storytellers. It is not just Africans to retell the story. It's also for global institutions and the media, for individuals who come or speak about Africa for any particular reason. I think sometimes actually, you know, people who we're trying to convince, um, you know, sometimes it's better when you speak to your own, right? So if an English person tells you, you know, and it tells England that, you know, Nigeria is a good place, then you're more likely to listen. So basically I feel that it, it, we should all be more conscious of how we tell stories about Africa because we should all be more conscious about the narrative we're feeding. Okay, thank you very much. I think um, in um, changing narrative of Africa to a positive one across the globe, there's a need for Africans to tell their story in exact how it is. And there's a need for other uh, people in other continents to be able to amplify the voices or the stories from um, the experiences uh, we are facing in Africa in a well-coordinated manner in such a way that most of the emphasis should not be placed on the sufferings or the the issues we are facing, but some of the projects, some of the progress that have been made and some of the the prospects that Africa tend to bring to fore when when you talk about global leadership and global sustainable development. Especially if you look at it now, my country, Nigeria, has made a leap forward to ensure three to ensure uh, to to give an ambitious target for energy transition and this conversation is on the way and this has really built a lot of um, momentum towards um, implementation so i think uh, more of our emphasis more of the emphasis should be placed on the positive side and it sh- uh, there is a need for some of these stories to be amplified 
beyond Nigeria, beyond Africa, so that more people can, can get to understand that there is more to Africa than the already existing negative narrative that has, um, that has been, um, um, been told for several decades now. Thank you. Thank you, Ibrahim. Well, everyone, um, that brings us to the end of our live. Um, it really has been a pleasure hearing from you, Moki, Denal, and Ibrahim. Um, you know, listening to your perspectives from, from your work and also your experiences um, has definitely been extremely insightful. Um, thank you all again to those of you who listened into this conversation. Um, just a reminder that it will be available on the GLF YouTube channel for you to listen back and share with others at any time. Next week, there will be another GLF Live on achieving gender equity in African supply chains. And again, you can find the link in your chat box. And please do check out the GLF Africa event on the 15th of September for many more great conversations, such as the one we had here today. We look forward to seeing you there. And um, yeah, next time here on uh, GLF Live. Thank you, everyone. If you liked what you heard today, stay tuned for next week's episode about how African countries can take charge of their own food security. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or Stitcher, and reach out to us on social media with the hashtag GLFLive. And for everything you need to know about landscapes, ecosystems, and climate change, check out our website at globallandscapesforum.org. We'll see you on the next one.